Good morning. The scripture reading today is from 1 John, the third chapter, verse 16 through 18. Then Leviticus, 19th chapter, verse 1 through 18. If you'd like to follow along, it's printed on page 6 of your bulletin. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they have desecrated what is holy to the Lord. They must be cut off from their people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We're in the middle of a series right now where we are reviewing uh, the vision, the mission of this church as we prepare to transition into a new building, which is really a new chapter for the life of our community as we engage with God as well as our neighbors. And so we thought, hey, this is a good time for us to refresh ourselves and why we exist. Why are we here? What kind of church are we trying to be? And you'll find in your bulletins there in the sermon section a quick summary of our vision statement and our mission statement. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started by talking about this key phrase, spiritually diverse community. What does that mean? The sermon is online if you'd like to look that up. Last week, we talked about gospel community. Today, we're going to talk about the idea of being a neighborhood community. What does that mean? What are some implications for our lives and our life together as a church? Let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll continue. God, we're asking for your help, and we ask for clear minds and open hearts. We do need your help. We always need your help. Uh, to be responsive to you, to hear your voice deep in our souls, uh, to know your word is truth, 
to take you seriously, uh, to be humble before you and before each other, but also encouraged and motivated to know that you give us grace as we grow. So we're giving ourselves to you, and we're sitting before your word, and we're asking that you will have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have said from the beginning of this church that our vision and our desire is not just to be a great church, but rather through a church that we might build a great neighborhood. That it's not all about us. That our desire is to gather in neighbors, especially those that are not a part of a faith community or not a part of the life of God. To love our neighbors and to see this neighborhood become one that is flourishing, not only spiritually, but also socially, culturally, economically, musically, aesthetically, in every sphere of life, because we believe that God cares about it all. Being a neighborhood church, it means a lot of things, doesn't it? And we can sit around and talk about different implications of what that means, different advantages, blessings that you yourself have experienced already being here. Being a neighborhood church means, instead of being spread out wide, being a church that drills down deep into people's lives, into the local community. Being a neighborhood church means having the possibility of intimacy, in the community, bumping into people midweek, accidentally, in the produce section, at 7-Eleven, on the street. Serendipitous community. It's a powerful thing. Being a neighborhood church means being so intertwined and interweaved into the life of the neighborhood, so much so that one day, if we were ever to close our doors, that our prayer would be that neighborhood blogs would light up. And that the story that was written was not, we're so glad they're out of here. But rather, we may not have agreed with everything they believed in, but we're so glad that they were here. Testimony that too often is not the case for churches. Being a neighborhood church means that to belong to this church means to invest in this neighborhood. Being a neighborhood church means to honor the history of the neighborhood. Because you can't love something that you don't know or understand. It means igniting a local movement of radical neighboring. People that actually care about their neighbors. Taking God's language of loving your neighbor to its most literal. The people to your left and to your right and the people that you live nearby or even live with. Being a neighborhood church means growing as Christians or as people that are figuring out what that means but also growing as neighbors, not only being just physically located here individually or as a church, but also being emotionally and relationally present as neighbors, which means sometimes slowing down, doesn't it? Devoting our time, our energy, our talents, our money, our hearts, our prayers to this very particular context. And it means loving and serving all of our neighbors But it does mean loving and serving our neighbors with a special concern for our lower income and most vulnerable of neighbors, which is what I want to focus on and talk about a little bit based upon the passages of scripture that we see here today. First of all, the importance of loving the poor. 
God has always expressed a special concern for the most vulnerable of people. It's on the heart of God, undeniably so in the pages of Scripture. The orphan or the functionally fatherless or motherless child. The widow, including the elderly or the single parent. And the poor, those who are not only economically, but also relationally disadvantaged. In fact, you know that there are over 400 verses in the Bible that speak of God's concern for the poor and the vulnerable. 400. You can't really read the Bible with integrity and honesty without coming away believing that it's something that God takes very seriously and very joyfully. And today's passages include just a few verses out of those 400. For example, the first passage, 1 John 3, 16, 17, it calls us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in need. Loving as Jesus has loved us, not with cold hearts, not with empty words, but with compassion and with real action. And I love this expression that John uses in verse 16, lay down our lives. It's so vivid, isn't it? Like literally putting down yourself physically before someone. It's so vivid. It's so dangerous. (laughs) It's not what we want to hear if what we're really out for is convenience and comfort in a hermetically sealed off life, living in peace and prosperity ourselves. John doesn't say we should give some charity alone. Doesn't actually write here, just do some community service. Doesn't write, give back to the community. Though all those things are good and not bad expressions. But notice the radical call. He says, we ought to die for those around us. Die in power, die in privilege, die in resources, die in comfort, die in love. Die to our own driven need to secure ourselves only to the neglect of others and to protect ourselves from all harm. Which, if we're honest with ourselves, is so deeply tied to this thing we call the American dream. John is calling us, inviting us to love in costly, sometimes, oftentimes uncomfortable ways, leaving ourselves vulnerable to being hurt, to facing loss, because, he says, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. So what does love that looks like, even feels like a cross, look like? He says it looks like laying down your lives for the poor. In Leviticus 19, the second passage, we have a scattering of different invitations. Verse 9 and 10 that instructs farmers not to harvest to the very outer edges of the fields. Uh, don't actually maximize your profits. <laughs> Strange request, even command. Don't keep all your earnings for yourselves. Why? Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner, the refugee. Share the resources and blessings you have. But you notice he's 
calling Israel to do it in a way, however, where they are creating space for the poor to take initiative themselves. Not just giving resources, but rather allowing them to joyfully use their gifts, their energy to help themselves, their families, and play a vital part in improving their own situation. A little bit of a principle of dignity and reciprocity. We can talk about that some more. Verse 13, don't oppress your employees. Don't take advantage of them. Holding back the wages that a hired worker deserves. Verse 14, care for the physically disadvantaged, the deaf, the blind. Verse 15, treat even the poor as equal citizens under the law, honoring and respecting them as peers. Where Moses says here, don't pervert justice, don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great under the law. But there's one big picture point here that I want to start off with and make here as we look at these different pieces, look at all the variety of things that God commands here in this passage. You might have been wondering, why are we looking at Leviticus 19 and all these other verses that touch on so many different topics? How you treat your parents. Verse 3, each of you must respect your mother and father. How you rest. That's what observing the Sabbath is all about in verse 3. How you worship God, verse 5 through 8, that confusing section about how to make a good sacrifice to God. How you speak to one another, how you pay your employees, how you love your neighbor. All of this that God bundles together and says, this is part of what it means to live a holy life. This word holy that simply means being radically different from the world, because God has changed your life. And here it is. Did you know that God doesn't separate private morality from public morality? He doesn't say, I care about your personal life, but I don't care about social justice or vice versa. He cares about it all. It all counts as things that he's calling us to be radically unique because of the grace of God. He says, be holy as I am holy. Or let me put it another way. God cares just as much about whether you're taking care of the poor and vulnerable as much as he cares about whether or not you lie and steal. That God cares about whether you love and respect the poor just as much as he cares about whether you love and respect your parents. God cares about whether you're thinking about or caring about the vulnerable and the disadvantaged just as much as he cares about whether you're worshiping idols and giving your life away to something you're treating as a God. Do you understand how much this is on the heart of God? And the John passage even tells us, in fact, this is so central to life in the gospel that how you treat those around you tells the true story of what's really in your heart. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity, no compassion, no care on them, How can the love of God be in that person? How do you know the reality of Jesus is at work in your life? How do you know that you really have experienced the love of God? How do you know that you yourself love God? 
Take a theology exam? No. Take a Bible quiz? No. God says, John says here, look at your life. Are you loving the poor? (laughs) It's so humbling, isn't it? I mean, it's so humbling. Because we live our lives making so many excuses. We live our lives just with so many different priorities at work. And here it is. You can't run from it. And yet, of course, the call, please understand, is not to be responsive to this out of guilt or fear, but rather motivated by the deep and generous love of God. Because if you take what he just said and flip it on its head, what is he saying? The very thing that will motivate you and empower you and call you to love those in need and vulnerable folks around you will be your deep experience of God's practical love for you, reaching down and caring for you in your vulnerabilities, resourcing you in your needs, extending relationship to you in all of your poverty in whatever form it comes in your life. And he looks to you and says, you belong to me. I forgive you. I care for you. I give my life for you. I give my son to you on the cross and in his resurrection. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for you and me. So should we not also lay down our lives for the poor? Every single one of us called to this, not as an activity and certainly not as an extracurricular activity in life, but rather as a lifestyle. You notice, of course, the call is not just to shoot out actions, but full engagement of life, even the engagement of the heart, which is what John starts with. For one that sees someone in need and doesn't let it hit them in the gut. Dear friends, when was the last time that you let the needs of other people around you and the brokenness of our neighborhood hit you in the gut and feel it like it felt like someone physically did just that to you. Because that's the way that God feels about this, about our dear neighbors, about you, if you find yourself in that situation. Whether if you're poor today or rich or middle class, Dear friends, there is always someone around you who needs a little help. There's always someone around you that you can bless and serve and care for and lay down your life for. What's that going to look like in your life? What it looks like in some churches and ministries are this. I want to just give you five examples of what rich and effective ministries in caring for the most vulnerable in the neighborhood have looked like in different churches in different cities around the country. I want to tell you first a story of Bob, Bob Lupton, actually a wonderful partner in ministry who's been working at this for decades now, explains in one thing that I've read and explained also in conversation together with him when he was here in D.C., a few years ago. He said, at Christmas time, I used to be involved with Adopt a Family at Christmas, where I would line up suburban families with families whose kids wouldn't get anything for Christmas, a common type of ministry, especially that time of year. Then on Christmas Eve day, we would deliver toys and, pre- uh, and presents 
to that family. Of course, the volunteers would be feeling great about their kindness, but when I sat in living rooms with needy neighbors, he writes, when the gift-bearing families arrived, I saw something that I've never seen before. The kids, of course, were excited. The moms were generally gracious, but a little bit subdued. But it was there that a dad, if there was a dad in the household, he just disappeared out the back door. You see, because these parents in front of their kids were being emasculated, Bob writes. In their own homes, they were being exposed for their inability to provide. It was destroying what shreds of pride they were managing to hold on. We have to find a better way of entering into charitable relationships with more reciprocity, Bob writes. Dignity is given to us by our creator. One-way relationships and one-way giving creates toxic relationships where one has the resources and the other has the need. How do we create respectful, honest, caring, and mutually supportive relationships, Bob asks. So we purchase new toys and set up a little toy shop in the public housing complex where they had been building relationships and marked them somewhere between a garage sale price and a wholesale price, and we invited the parents to come in and shop. If they didn't have money, we would hire them to run the store, different tasks and responsibilities, and even giving them vouchers that could be used to buy toys. Then on Christmas morning, these parents in the city would experience, Bob writes, the same joy as those in the suburbs watching their children open the gifts that they secured for their children from the efforts of their own hands. We adopted and renamed the adopted, sorry, we renamed the Adopt-A-Family program and called it instead Pride for Parents. Evangeline was a longtime resident of Anacostia in southeast D.C. She'd been recently divorced and was looking for support in raising her three daughters. And then she found a ministry called Anacostia Gospel Chapel. And she says this, As a single parent, I've not had the daddy there to reinforce what I teach at home. I've depended on the consistency of the teaching here at church. That's been my real backup at home. And then there's Joyce, also another single mother at the same church, who has such a relationship with the church's pastor and other members of the community who have served almost like substitute fathers for her girls whether if it's mediating disputes at home between the teens and their mom or accompanying the girls to job and school interviews or celebrating their academic achievements, really becoming a family, which is, in fact, what God intended the church to be, isn't it? And then there's Gloria, who was a middle-aged mother of four. She made it her goal to get off government assistance and to be finally more self-sufficient a goal of hers that she was motivated for, and so she enrolled in a church-based tutoring program. But this is what she also says. I didn't have much confidence. There was fear, and the last time I'd been in a classroom was 20 years ago, and I knew I needed encouragement. So even in addition to the classes themselves, what she found to be so crucial was that the church had created what they called family share teams. 
to support relationally the neighbors participating in the class. Three to six Christians paired with one woman and her family who's enrolled in the GED program. The role is simply to be her friend. They meet twice a month to develop friendship with the student and her family. And that's what she says got her through. There's Lisa, who also was a part of the same ministry. Her story is that it's not always easy. And it's not always neat and tidy. Lisa admits that she initially had trouble trusting some of the members of the team because they came from such different backgrounds from her own. Building cross-racial friendships was different and even a little threatening. She says, but when I got to know them, I'd never in my life met so many nice white people. They care. They help me when I need it. And if I need encouragement, they give it to me. And then there's Kareem, a junior high student. No, sorry, a junior in high school who now wants to be a physical therapist. And Donald, a recent high school graduate who aspires to be a surgeon. And that's in part because of their involvement in a mentorship program started by a physician at Rosedale Baptist Church. And the idea of this ministry was to expose 18 inner-city students to career opportunities in the medical profession in order to enlarge their dreams and their aspirations, to give them something to shoot for, and all the while to love them, not just in the future, but in the present. And so the students were linked with Christian mentors with whom the students met weekly, and the teens would then visit hospitals, nursing home facilities, physical therapy and rehabilitation centers, visit the ER, in all these ways gaining a hands-on feel for these institutions and this line of work. Praise God for what God did in Kareem's life and in Donald's life. And then lastly, there's Sheila. Sheila, who finally hit rock bottom. She was addicted to crack. She'd been homeless. She sold everything she had, even her children's bed and even her own body for drug money. She'd had her children taken from her by the government, and finally one night she heard a preacher on TV. She says, I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and to come into my life and be Lord of my life. A big turning point for her afterwards, she started cleaning up her life. It wasn't easy, but she quit smoking crack. She started attending church. She decided to go back to school. And so she joined the STEP Academy In Richmond, a holistic educational outreach to residents of the Gilpin neighborhood, people who want to pursue their GED or a community college degree. Persevering through that for a couple of years and a few years later, here Sheila is in college, majoring in early childhood education. She got her kids back, became a pillar in the church, counseling, teaching, discipling, even sharing her testimony to people on the streets. And she comes back and shares her story with new students at the Step Academy who were in her shoes, her shoes just a few years prior. And this is what she says to them. What I found that was so great about Step's program was that it dealt with problems that are deeper than educational ones. I had problems with me. I didn't feel good about me. But when I got involved in the Bible study and I got around different women and I didn't feel inferior, they didn't say they were better than me, I blossomed. 
So if you're looking to be changed, this is the place to be because not only are they going to teach you the educational things, they're going to teach you about Jesus. And at a time like this, we need Jesus, especially when we've tried everything else and nothing else has worked. Praise God for holistic ministries like that that are caring not only for physical and material and educational needs, but also spiritual and emotional needs as well. I tell you these stories simply to give you permission to dream. What might be the sorts of creative ministries built around who you are and built around who our neighbors are here in our context? Doesn't mean it'll happen overnight. It's a long building process and takes perseverance. But would you dare to dream? And maybe even take a step in a creative direction towards loving the poor like this. I'm going to close with a couple practical principles I think we find, not only in the stories that I just shared with you, but also in the passages that we're looking at. A couple practical pointers, very briefly. Number one, never forget, everyone is needy. Every single one of us is a broken person. John 3, 1 John 3.16 here says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and it wasn't because he just felt good about doing that. It's because we really badly needed a Savior. Every single one of us engaging the lives of our neighbors need to come in with this posture of being the chief of sinners and the chief needy person among all. Someone that's desperate for the grace of God and of the help of God. So that we come in with a humble posture of mutual need. Of saying, look, every single one of us, every single neighbor in this community, our needs might be different, but we're all needy. Some needs might be material and financial and practical. Other people, it might be spiritual. Some people are struggling with addiction to crack. Other people are struggling with addiction to work. Some people don't know where to turn. Some people know where to turn but don't have access to it. Some people do know where to turn but don't care to because it's a shot to their pride. So whether rich or poor or middle or anything in between, whoever you are and whatever our stories are, the call here is also to embrace our mutual brokenness before God. Loving as we have been loved humbled by the grace of God, not going out to paternalize or patronize, not ever believing that we're the savior of the neighborhood. We're not. Jesus is, and he's been at work far before we ever got here. And even for those of you that have been here for generations, he was here before you too. Because Jesus made this neighborhood and made every neighbor's life and has the power to redeem every life in the way that we need it. Everyone is needy. Number two, it starts with seeing. It starts with seeing. As John says, again, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and doesn't let it sock it to them in the gut, how can they say that the love of God is in them? It all starts with, first of all, first of all even noticing people around you. Dear friends, 
Do you look around? Do you slow down even your literal pace of life? The footsteps with which you walk or ride your bike or drive or trudge through on the bus or the metro, slowing down enough to see people's lives for what they are. Do you see what goes on around in a neighborhood that is going through so much change? It's really easy just to believe that this part of town is simply a cool place to live. To almost be, in a sense, fooled by the oasis of intensive economic development in the center of the neighborhood, not understanding that there are people that live and work and walk right in our midst constantly, that live radically different lives. And if you're someone that feels that way, we want to hear your story. Please share your life for the benefit of all. It starts with seeing and noticing the life of Omar Sykes, Howard's student who was shot and killed on Fairmont Street just a few blocks down here on the night of 4th of July. Of hearing and letting it trouble you to know that 18-year-old Anthony Sanchez shot and killed Columbia Road right over here, July 18th. Or to know and to see and to feel and to be troubled by, even without knowing what all the answers are, that two months ago right here in Meridian Place, three blocks from where we are right now, a man and a woman abducted, beaten, robbed at gunpoint. The woman was taken around the corner to Oak Street where she was raped. I'm not trying to sensationalize these things. I'm not trying to make people afraid. Maybe somebody wants to leave and find another church now. But we got to know so that we can love and to love like Jesus laying down our lives. Columbia Heights and its surrounding neighborhoods is not the hardcore hood. That's not what we're trying to say. I mean, for goodness sakes, we've got a perfume mania just down the street over here, right? But we do have real needs and real struggles and real neighbors. Thirdly, lastly, the goal is family. The goal is family. The goal is always family. In John, 1 John 3, 16 and 17, you hear the language there of brother and sister. In verse 18, John addresses the Christians as his children. He's just using intimate language of those who belong to the family of faith. And note this, even when he's talking about those in need, in this immediate context, he's talking about those in the family of faith. And this is what we have to notice. That this passage, and really, dear friends, the whole Bible, including Leviticus 19, always assumes that the church will be a socioeconomically mixed Christian family. Because he's talking about, well, you know those brothers and sisters in your midst that have need that you see, that hit you in the heart and then compel you out of the love of Jesus to care for. You know those in your community, in your church, sitting next to you in your lives. Love them which means they ought to be there. They ought to be here. And they are gradually and increasingly, it's been the dream and ambition of this church to gather an economically mixed community, and not just for the benefit of those that have material needs, for the benefit of us all. Because we're richer for it when we experience more of the grace of God and the gospel when we have people coming from different vantage points and people that have experienced the provision of God in rich and wonderful and varied ways. 
an inclusive community, a neighborhood community, that we're praying will actually be enhanced with our Mount Rona move. There's something about a traditional church building, you know, that creates level ground for people of all backgrounds to come in on. Because church buildings have traditionally been symbolic places for people to find a safe haven, no matter what your background, to be able to wander in, to be able to find care and love and mercy. Or at least that's the way Jesus intended it to be. A traditional historic space that is a clear and intuitive cue for people. There is a church. There might be a place where I will find mercy in a time of need. But will we be ready to receive and love and to push out into the lives of all our neighbors, whoever God brings to our community? And of course, all this means that the call is a call to relationships not just to dispensing resources, a call to giving ourselves to people, laying down our lives, not just laying down our stuff, right? Sometimes it's easier to write a big check. Sometimes it's easier just to hop in and hop out on the weekend. This is an invitation to open all of ourselves to one another, to be people-centered and not just need-centered, even if it means spending more time with fewer people than less time with more people, because God is calling us to love. And it's why here in this church, we don't always use the language of serving as much or service projects as much, because we want to hammer it home again and again. What we're calling to, what we're being called to is friendship and life together. Because the goal is family. The goal is worshiping together In here, well, over there, two blocks away, pretty soon. To be living in community together, to getting to know God, maybe for the first time, or deepening our trust in God for the thousandth time when we come to the end of ourselves and God shows up once again. At the heart of all of this is what John tells us simply is the essence of the love of God, which is self-sacrifice, the preeminent example of which is the cross of Christ. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we also ought to lay down our lives for others. Let's pray. Jesus, we're asking for grace to receive this word and grace to live it, to walk it. And we do need your help. We need help from the friend of sinners, the friend of all those in need, our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's pray. I mean, pray, sing. I always say that.